0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. The sun is the solution to so many of our energy challenges, and it's now possible to harvest solar power and deliver it where it's needed. SunGrow's cutting-edge technology for residential, commercial, and large-scale energy generation uses state-of-the-art equipment. To find out more about SunGrow's inverters for solar and storage, go to sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading US-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. Core Power is dedicated to widespread energy storage adoption while keeping manufacturing domestic in order to stabilize and protect the US grid. Find out more about Core Power's modules which are now on the market at corepower.com, k o r e corepower.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. Steph Spears was raised by her mother on minimum wage. She saw energy poverty close up while selling off-grid solar in India. And she carries those experiences into every decision she makes as CEO of the solar company, Solstice.
1: I, at first, didn't know what to do with that privilege. I don't know why I get to be in these elite rooms, but my mom doesn't get to. Or other folks who, who want to be in that room, too, don't get a seat at the table then you begin to see that there's not that much that separates those two worlds and those two types of people other than opportunity and chance.
0: Welcome to What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies, their backgrounds, their passions, their deals, their struggles, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. In this episode, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sits down with Steph Spears. Steph is the co-founder and CEO of Solstice, a community solar startup with a focus on equity. Steph decided she wanted to use her seat at the table to make room for others. Solstice's motto is solar for every American. Steph Spears grew up one of three kids, first generation, in Hawaii. Her mom had immigrated from Korea. She knows what eviction feels like and what it's like to skirt homelessness. She got a scholarship to a private high school, became a national merit scholar, and accrued three master's degrees at Yale, Princeton, and MIT. In this interview, you'll hear how her time in the Obama administration led to a summer internship with the nonprofit impact investor Acumen. She worked on solar lanterns in India. Her time in Yemen, India, and then Pakistan led to an awakening about energy injustice here in the United States. Solstice has now developed a pipeline of 100 megawatts of community solar, and it just closed its biggest funding round so far. This conversation was recorded remotely. It's part of a speaker series that Powerhouse and Green Tech Media put on. You can go to powerhouse.fund and click the events tab to go see who else is coming up. And you can also go to Green Tech Media to see the other guests that we've had on this show previously. We've got pictures and show notes and a whole lineup of dozens and dozens of guests. And now, here is Emily Kirsch with Steph Spears.
2: All right, so going back to the beginning of your life, you were born in Honolulu, Hawaii, where you were raised by a single immigrant mother, Uh, After immigrating from Korea, your mom raised you and your two siblings on a a minimum wage union worker salary. You went to public school up until high school, and in high school, you got a scholarship, uh, or you got a scholarship to attend a private high school in Honolulu, where you were class president, newspaper editor, senior prefect, top student of the class in 2003, and a national merit scholar. So aside from being incredibly impressive, what were you like as a kid, and what were you and your family like? Yeah,
1: I feel like I should tell high school me to uh, relax a little bit. And <laughs> my um, some context, my sister started reading when she was two. She went to college when she was 13. And so in a lot of ways, it just striving was normalized. And it was also because of the way that I grew up. My mom was an immigrant, like you said. And she. when you earn minimum wage, unfortunately, in this country, you cannot uh, support a family on just that, and minimum wage actually increased in 2007 and 2008 and 2009 um, by about a dollar each time, and it's been stuck there for the last 11 years at 7.25 mm-hmm. an hour. And so, watching the most incredible human you know, the most talented person, um, my mom. Just struggle uh, to make it because not because she didn't have um, the talent, but because she didn't have the opportunity was really formative and had a pro- profound impact on my life. And one thing, though, if you're you know getting evicted and and home, a little you know homeless, if not for family members that have spare bedrooms and. It, you know, you mentioned I was a scholarship kid. I was the scholarship kid at my high school who served other kids lunch um, during lunch hour. And so if you kind of watch your family member that you love that could be a better CEO than I could be struggle so much um, for things that are outside of her control, like her accent, then I think you begin to realize that there's reasons why some people have privilege and other people don't. And those reasons are not always fair. It's often the birth lottery or where you were born um, in terms of geography. And so my mom taught us one thing that I've carried throughout my entire life, which is that wealth is not about how much money you have. It's about The things that you have that no one can take away from you, even if you fall on hard times. And so she taught us to study a lot and um, taught us that everything could be possible if we worked really hard and we took nothing for granted. So um, having there my sister, my brother and my mom's example was a huge reason why um, that like I think the last thing that I would mention there is that, you know, that list of accomplishments sometimes people will attribute that to me but it's not me it's it's isaac newton has a quote that said if i have seen further it's because i stood on the shoulders of giants and so it's that says more about my mom's sacrifice than what i accomplished
2: I feel like we could stop the interview and everyone would know everything they need to know about you just based on that one answer, but we should keep going. <laughs> um, speaking of hard work, you received, uh, and and the support of all the people in your life, you received essentially a full scholarship to go to Yale, where you earned an MBA in history and international studies, and later earned a master's in public affairs, in development economics and international development from Princeton, and then later in your career, you got an MBA from MIT. (laughs) So I'm curious, what was it like growing up, as you described, just above the poverty line as a first-generation immigrant? And then what was it like to go on to study at Yale and Princeton and MIT? And also curious, what made you focus on international development?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you I grew up in Hawaii, as you mentioned, and Hawaii is the most isolated landmass in the world, I believe. And it is um, when you don't really have money to travel, you kind of dream of the world and and seeing more. And so that's what led me to study international development. Also, as the child of immigrants, there's, you know, our story of this country is a story built on immigrants and the hard work that they put into this country and their contributions as well. Um, If you're not indigenous, then you're an immigrant too. And so really wanted to understand how to... Uh, bring more countries into prosperity and being able when I was at Yale there was not a single day in which I looked around and didn't feel so lucky to be there I think the theme of my life is that I have felt very lucky to be wherever I am Um, and that's not to say that you know I don't think I didn't work hard to get there but I there's so many people who don't have that opportunity and so I at first didn't know what to do with that privilege. I don't know why I get to be in these elite rooms but my mom doesn't get to or other folks who who want to be in that room too don't get a seat at the table. And I realized that the role of power and privilege is to use it to open up the doors for other folks to access that same sort of power and it's, 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 our, it's a purpose that's driven me throughout my whole life. Um, if you have your two feet in two different worlds, one that's um, the have-nots and ones that, that are full of the haves, then you begin to see that there's not that much that separates those two worlds and those two types of people other than opportunity and chance.
2: Really well said. Um, After graduating in 2007 from Princeton at the age of 22, you joined the first Obama campaign where you started as a field organizer in seven pivotal primary states. And then at the senior age of 23, you served as deputy field director at Obama for America in Ohio uh, for the general election. So at 23 years old, you led a team of 150 people. And uh, you told me that you worked 521 days straight without a day off. So tell me what was the campaign like and what did you learn from your time on the campaign?
1: I mean, I wasn't the only one that did that. It was a it was a whole network of people um, who came together, many people who had never been politically active in their entire life. And, you know, I was working in very rural areas across the country, living out of my car, and just being astounded that no matter where I went, I found people who, were just like me and who really wanted the same things in life. People just wanted to take care of their loved ones. They wanted a shot at a good job. They wanted to, um, y- you know, be uh, be able to ch- achieve their goals if they worked hard enough. And people wanted to believe that we were going to progress in some way. And so what connected people all across the country was common. And I also mm-hmm. witnessed people sacrifice uh so much for the things that they believed in. You know, I watched a woman, one of my super volunteers, she had Parkinson's, so she couldn't go door to door and she would just sit there hours writing postcards to her neighbors asking mm. them to consider voting for Barack Obama. And so watching mm. ordinary people come together and t- only when they came together could do extraordinary things, a very improbable thing um, of electing Barack Obama as president. That was the best lesson straight out of college that anyone could ever have. And that's the best job I'll I'll probably never get to do again as a field organizer going door to door for 12 hours a day. But Mm. um, but what what a what an inspirational example for the rest of my life to strive for. Mm.
2: Did you think he would win?
1: No, I did not. I I was actually, I knew that I wanted to work for Barack Obama because I wanted to try to help him win. But you have Mm. to remember at the time in 2006 and 2007, you know, Hillary Clinton was just assumed to be the Democratic nominee. And so who the people that worked on the Obama campaign, none of the people who started in early states really were in it for any political glory, they just wanted to help him. And they believed in the vision that he had for america which is that i am my brother's keeper i am my sister's keeper and and there's uh we can build a government based on solidarity and and taking care of each other
2: rather than pitting us against each other mm-hmm. after obama was elected president in 2009 you helped develop middle east policy as a special assistant in the Department of Homeland Security. And then in 2010, you were hired at the White House as a special assistant uh, to the head of Middle East policy. And in 2011, you were promoted to the director of Yemen policy, which made you the youngest policy director at the National Security Council. All of this was happening around the time of the Arab Spring. Uh, what, What were these roles like and what did you learn?
1: Yeah, my first job in the White House was a uh, special assistant in the Middle East office. So my job was to answer the phone, get my boss lunch and make sure foreign nationals didn't steal things. <laughs> um, special assistant means a lot of things in DC, but sometimes it means that. And thanks uh-huh. to his, he was really empowering. And, and I spent a year before the Arab Spring broke out, begging for more work and begging to mm-hmm. help people. And, and I tried to approach it with how can I contribute rather than what I what I wanted or deserved. And people were so busy they needed help and so they started giving me little bits of projects and then the Arab Spring happened and there were there was more work than time to do it in and my very kind boss asked if I wanted to take over the Yemen portfolio and at the time we were trying to get a dictator out of power um, to 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 try to get a, a government in place that was responsive to the people rather than uh, the elite and you know, it's it's obviously a really hard situation in Yemen. Still, we didn't fix it, but we figured out that we could give more money to humanitarian and democratic transitions, as opposed to primarily, you know, military and counterterrorism funding. And so, working towards that were, was was an incredible opportunity to see a once in a generation. Um, democratic transition and what can go wrong and what how we need to be better to ensure that governments do uh, represent the people they're supposed to to serve.
2: Um, After after your time in the Obama administration, and then after a few months of leading get out the vote efforts for the Obama 2012 campaign, you moved to Pakistan as a summer associate with the nonprofit impact investing fund Acumen, and then later moved to India uh, to work with one of Acumen's Acumen's portfolio companies called D-Light, providing energy access via solar. And so you started Solstice right after graduating from Princeton, and then you continued to work on it while you lived in India. Uh, you, were, you were working remotely on Solstice day and night, managing those two schedules. So how were you balancing your time doing this work full-time with, with Acumen and with D-Light and starting Solstice? Um, and then how did your time in Pakistan and India influence uh, what Solstice eventually became?
1: Yeah, I I was not doing two full-time jobs on purpose. I had committed to working in D-Light for a year right as my co-founders and I were starting Solstice and wanted to live up to my commitment. And so that meant um, working from 9 to 6 in India on the normal day job of of trying to get solar lanterns to more folks who lived off the grid. And then when work let out at 6 p.m., working the East Coast hours, which is 6 p.m. India time is 9 a.m. East Coast time. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I had amazing co-founders who were back in the U.S. doing a lot of the on-the-ground work, and I was joining calls remotely, and we were able to kind of push the the idea forward in that year still. Um, and a lot of that time was just knowing that we had to focus on getting more people access to clean energy. So I was halfway across the world, you know, looking for more renewable energy opportunities to invest in and and then working on these microgrids and solar lanterns in in India. But back home in America, so many people couldn't get access to clean energy. And so that was like a homing beacon to to continue the work, uh, even when it was a little bit tiring.
2: I can imagine. So, uh, after, after Delight, you, you went to MIT where you met your co-founder, Sandia Morali, and then in 2000, 2017, you received an MBA and, and um, that's when you started Solstice. So I'm curious, yeah, t- tell me more about the journey of this time focused on energy access abroad, but then recognizing the need for the opportunity here in the US. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, a big reason why I wanted to work on renewables is because of my time in the Middle East, you know, we'd be driving through Yemen in armored vehicles, and we would look out the window, and we'd see people lined up waiting for fuel, but we were starting spending our whole day on Counterterrorism and military issues, and then um, when I moved to India and Pakistan, I I thought, yes, you know, this is an an area of the world where a massive number of people don't have access to the grid, and this is where I can do the most good. And then there was the realization that back home. Um, people didn't have access, even in uh, the most prosperous nation in the world. Very few people had access to clean energy, and so coming back home and working with Sandia to build Solstice was a, a realization that sometimes to have the most impact, we should start in our backyards. And and I remain incredibly grateful. Um, every day that I get to work with Sandia, she's she's also uh, an incredible woman leader in energy and and really runs so much about solstice and so I want to give her credit for for building the company as well
2: um I'm curious oftentimes I think we feel like I well Personally, I felt like when I was starting Powerhouse, I felt like I needed an MBA. I was like, how can I start a company if I don't have an MBA? I won't know what to do. I did not get an MBA, but I'm curious, how do you feel about having an MBA now that you have one?
1: Yeah, I also felt that way. You know, I felt like I needed, I was coming from government and politics and and I needed business credibility. Little did I know that in the startup world they don't consider an MBA business credibility <laughs> and, and and little did I know that oftentimes an, an MBA feels like getting a master's in confidence but I <laughs> owe so much to my MBA I mean I met my co-founder uh, at, at in business school Um, You know, some of my first funders were my classmates at business school and the Entrepreneurship Center at MIT housed us and gave us an office for two years. Mm. And so Solstice would not exist if it had not been for business school. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wasn't I wouldn't have been able to go to business school had I not gotten a scholarship to go. And it is a very expensive proposition. And so it's not for everyone. And I don't think anyone needs an MBA, but it's OK if folks want an MBA.
2: <laughs> um, so you mentioned some of the capital that you raised early on came from your own classmates. So it, you, you started Solstice in your MBA. What made you make the leap? There's one thing to say, oh, I have this idea based on these experiences that I've had abroad. It's another thing to say, I'm going to make the leap and start this company. So how did you make the leap? And then where did that first k that you raised come from?
1: Yeah, I I think part of the reason why I went to business school was because I was afraid to fail. And mm-hmm. I, you know, in some ways, MBA was a safe backup plan if things didn't work out. And then I was kind of um, doing both uh, the full-time MBA and the full-time solstice job. And I realized that if you are doing two things at 70%, you're, you, are you you are You feel like you're going 140% over your capacity, but you're probably getting a C at life. And so (laughs) I I realize that this comes down to commitment, that startups statistically will fail, even if you put 100% into it. And if you don't put everything into it, if you don't put your all into it, if you don't dive headfirst into a startup, then you are dooming it. To fail because there's no way it survives with anything less than a hundred plus effort and so that kind of realization about commitment made me realize that I had to kind of do I was gonna forego a lot of the most fun things about business school which is the the, the networking and the connections and going out with people and learning up from other people and, and focus entirely on solstice and in doing so, I think my classmates were incredibly supportive. In business school, you are you are given a team of six people to do all of your assignments with. And two of those folks, uh, Dennis and Rodrigo, were my first two funders when we first w- were raising. And they Um, handed me a a check at a class event. And Dennis said, you know, you have to be better at asking for money. You shouldn't just be forced to take a check at a social engagement that I tracked you down at. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was because I was so afraid of asking Mm -hmm. my friends for or my connections or Mm -hmm. anyone I really respected. I was really scared to ask them for money because I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to ruin the relationship. And then it's, Mm -hmm. it's that commitment. Like if you don't, give it your all you will fail and so you know help it, figuring out that mm. uh, if if we had any choice of making solar more accessible to people i had to get over my fears of about money that stemmed from my childhood and i had to um, remember that i should not let my fear of money get in the way of the liberation of people who are marginalized and who don't have um, things that they deserve. So that's that's what got me over it. Were you paying yourselves early on? <laughs> no, we were not paying ourselves for the first few years. And then uh, just, just recently, you know, we graduated to a, a pretty marginal salary and we're still paying ourselves below market. But my co-founder and I have a feel of a deep responsibility that we shouldn't increase our own compensation unless we can increase the whole teams kind of commensurately. So that's been our philosophy for the past few years. And um, you know, this is not like a Jeff Bezos situation where one person's wealth grows and grows but everyone else stays the same. We're gonna we're gonna kind of lift lift everyone together.
2: Uh, In 2018, you raised a seed round and then you just closed this twice oversubscribed note round, which Powerhouse Ventures and Schneider Electric Ventures and Total Carbon Neutrality Ventures are all very proud and happy to have invested in, along with a few others who will be announced soon. Um, What have you learned about fundraising and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are at the pre-seed and seed stage and just getting started?
1: Oh, man, I've learned so much about fundraising and I want to share all of what I've learned, especially with, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, marginalized populations that have harder time accessing capital. And so a -hmm. a couple things. One is that in fundraising, the people who teach fundraising, they'll teach you about the pitch and the pitch is really important. And, you know, knowing how to showcase your business model and your traction is really important but it's only fifty percent of it. I think the other fifty percent is the process, and and it's a it's a craft that's learnable, but it's very tactical. And so, for example, no one ever teaches you this is your CRM for tracking investors, and this is this is how you follow up. And no one ever says uh, you have to this is what makes a perfect data room for your investors doing due diligence and these are the three types of desks, decks pitch decks and the two types of financial models you need before you even step outside the door to, and talk to an investor and you know one thing i wish all younger or uh, early stage entrepreneurs stop doing was asking everyone around them do you know of an investor that can invest in my business Because that's, I don't think, the most effective way to phrase that question. The recipient who hears that question will just think, "Um, you know, let me think about it and get back to you. And more likely than not, they're not going to be able to come up with a list. What we should all do is have do do our homework, come up with our target top 25 investors and take that piece of paper with you to every single meeting you go to and show that list to investors or super connectors and say, is this the right list? Do you know anyone on this list? Am I missing anyone on this list? And by doing a little bit of homework on the front end, you know, you invite responses. Uh, you give people less of a burden on themselves to think of the answers and you give them something to reflect on. And I think that's so much more effective. And and so there are little tactical things like that, that I wish, I th- wish we were all taught. And then also the last thing I'll say is that there's kind of a perverse characteristic of fundraising that you are more likely to get funding if people feel FOMO. Like if they feel like your 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 round is scarce or closing, then you'll have much more funder interest than at the beginning. And so one one thing I I want folks, especially, you know, founders of color to know is that You know, really think about who are the first people that you're getting in the door, the first investors you're getting in the door, um, because they'll set the tone for the rest of your round and you're going to get married to them. Fundraising is like dating and you should vet them as such, because these are going to be partners with you for the rest of your business, if not your life. And and um, and we feel really lucky having gone through that process to have the investors we have, including now you.
2: Very grateful to to be a part of Solstice in this way. And you've taken that capital, capital and you've worked on 26 community solar projects. In the early days, what did you do with this capital? How did you build your product? How did you get your first customers?
1: Yeah, in our early days, our focus was just on trying to talk to as many customers as possible. Sometimes I think st- um, startups will think that they have the perfect product and go out and it actually there's not product market fit and there's not a there's not an audience for what you think the world needs. And so just talking to as many people as possible around about their energy use and and what they wanted and what they were willing to pay for clean energy was really telling. And initially, no one was willing to give, you know, three college grads LLC that much of responsibility. And so when we were getting our first uh, partnerships with solar developers they were giving us small chunks of projects um, and they weren't they were really small at 200 kilowatts at a time and we said okay we're going to start small we're going to do a really good job at this small scale and then just slowly grow and then you know the next year went from 200 kilowatts to two megawatts at a time then it was six megawatts at a time now it's you know more bigger portfolios entire portfolios at a time and so just knowing to, to smart, start small and, and know that and build your systems so that they can scale has been kind of our original theory for how we were going to get started.
0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Core Power, Based in the U.S., CorePower is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, CorePower is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. Once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 12 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. The facility will leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers an end to end energy storage management solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2 gigawatt hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K O R E, corepower.com. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is taking the COVID-19 outbreak seriously. It is getting products to people very quickly and on time and doing it safely. SunGrow prioritized the safety of its employees by investing in measures to protect them from infection inside the factory. And it's working closely with suppliers and customers to make sure that inverters get to renewable energy projects around the world on time. SunGrow has also worked with communities to get face masks to people who need them. You can find out about SunGrow's work and its products at SunGrowPower.com.
2: And for those that are new to community solar, what is community solar? What is Solstice? What is the pro- who's the customer?
1: Yeah, so. For the first time in the history of the United States and the world, solar is actually cheap enough that it can help us all save money on our electricity bills. But the issue is that most of us cannot put solar on our home. So the vast majority of Americans, four out of five Americans, cannot install solar on their home for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're a renter or a condo owner, or there's a tree covering their roof, or their roof is facing the wrong way, or it's made out of the wrong materials or they can't uh, afford the cost of solar or don't have the right FICO credit score to get financing. And so when you look at all the reasons why people can't put solar on their home, then you see, wow, this is the reason why so few people actually have solar. Mm. And community solar is a solution to this problem. So for the folks that are locked out of rooftop solar, they could buy a portion of a neighborhood shared solar farm. And it's not a microgrid where you're directly plugged into the solar farm. The electricity flows from the farm back to the grid. But people can subscribe to a portion of that power. And they see the benefits show up as a credit on their monthly utility bill. And the subscription part is key because it means that people don't have to pay up front for the solar. They're just paying for the power that's produced by their share. And generally speaking, in most states, they're paying for this at a guaranteed discount Mm. compared to what they would have paid for the utility for that power so they're not putting anything on their home they're not putting um, paying anything up front and they're guaranteed a savings so it's the most affordable and accessible type of solar out there
2: Mm. so you are saving people money your customers are the developers what is the business model for solstice how do you all make money
1: Yeah. So there's on one side of the market in the solar marketplace, you have developers that are building and financing these solar farms. And they're very good at that. And they're very good at putting solar in the ground, getting the land, arranging the capital stack, getting interconnection and permitting. But they have generally been uh, used to selling their power to the utility at the wholesale price. And now they want to do community solar because they get a higher price closer to the retail rate of electricity for their solar farms. But now they have to deal with the prospect of signing up hundreds, if not thousands of residential customers. And generally speaking, they don't have the software that can manage that whole customer experience from um, customer education to customer enrollment and the billing and the crediting of people's bill and the integration with their utility accounts. And so what we do is we take care of every step of that customer experience for solar developers. And we we do all of the community organizing and customer education around community solar with, you know, directly to residents and businesses that sign up for solar farms. And we're also doing all of the management of the solar farms with our software, the billing and the crediting of the customer um, and the management of the customer experience. And so our obsession is how do we make solar so easy and so affordable that everyone can do it? And part of the reason why we uh, really own that whole customer experience is because we're intent on making it more inclusive to underserved communities and low to moderate income Americans. So that is um, what's fueled the founding of Solstice and, and why we do the work we do.
2: I know part of making it more accessible and one of the things that Powerhouse Ventures is most excited about is your energy score product. Energy score is a more accurate way in predicting utility bill payments and more inclusive of low-income Americans compared to industry standard FICO scores. How does energy score work and what impact is it having with your customers?
1: Yeah, to understand energy score, I just want to make sure everyone understands a couple of things about the FICO credit scores. Like, Why do we use FICO credit scores in energy? And so I think most people know that FICO credit scores are your destiny in this country, that they determine whether you get a loan or a car or sometimes an apartment or a job um, will check your credit score. And so it's really hard to do anything if you don't have a high credit score and my mom used to tell us just because we don't have a high credit score does not mean we're bad people and she was oh. right <laughs> and uh and in, in solar you know cr- your credit score also determines whether you can get access to financing for rooftop solar and it determines whether you get community solar for a lot of projects so that is We thought that was ridiculous because FICO credit scores don't measure a lot of things. They don't measure your utility repayment history, your cell phone payment history, your rental history. All of this isn't measured in FICO. And so you could have a half a million dollar mortgage and have a higher FICO score than someone who pays their rental bill on time every month. So FICO is our destiny in this country. But we now have better data science that we don't have to rely on FICO anymore. We can rewrite our destiny using innovation and, and more accurate data. And so we set out, thanks to uh, a support from the Department of Energy, and with our research, our data scientists at MIT and Stanford, we invented something called the Energy Score. And the Energy Score is based on 800,000 lines of consumer data. Uh, we did machine learning regressions, and we found that the algorithm is more accurate at predicting utility bill payment behavior than FICO. And it's more inclusive of low to moderate income Americans who would have been locked out of clean energy projects if we were relying on FICO. So you can be more accurate at determining bill payment history and you can be more inclusive of low to moderate income Americans. We live in a world in which you can be more inclusive, and it doesn't have to hurt business. And so that's a that's the world that we're trying to, to, to live in is the world that as, as it should be.
2: You've created this vision and built this business to the point of now having 28 people on the solstice team, did building a team and building solstice? Did that all come naturally to you? How did you know how to do it?
1: No, but, you know, it didn't come naturally, but I, and a great lesson when I was working in the White House, and and you're lucky enough to witness some of the most talented, uh, credentialed, you know, smart, intelligent people get in a room, and you realize that there's no way they're, they, they know everything about what they're doing. And, and honestly, you know, sitting in the situation room sometimes, like, it was very clear that people were just figuring it out. And so, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of important um, things about having the experience to do the job well, but there's a lot of that everyone at the top is figuring it out as they go along too. And so having a comfort with that helped us think outside the box and kind of go beyond just what traditional industries were doing is we have to figure out a better way. No one else has done this before. And so there's no roadmap. And that is how we've um, been able to do weird things like invent the energy score, um, because we just saw a gap and we try to problem solve our way through it. And and so no, it, it hasn't felt natural, but I think what we've learned is that it's all about learning and who learns the fastest. That's successful startups are not the ones that get it right out of the door on the first day. Successful startups are the ones
2: who learn the fastest. Well said. Every founder, just about every founder that we've interviewed on What It Takes has been within months or weeks or days or hours of shutting their doors. What's the closest that Solstice has ever come to shutting shutting the doors?
1: Yeah, a couple years ago, we were about... a pay, we are a pay period away from shutting our doors. It was a choice between figuring out a way to infuse capital and make payroll, um, and, and letting people go. And my co-founder and I take that responsibility, uh, of, of employing people very seriously. You know, these are people's livelihoods and I don't, um, I don't have children yet, but I do in, in, I'm not trying to be paternalistic, but I do think of my team, like my family, and I can't, if if i can do anything to prevent them from losing their livelihood i will and so my co-founder and i you know took loans out to personal loans essentially to to kind of uh, save the company and float it for a little while till we got other kinds of funding and 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 got revenue in the door and so it's it's a little bit ironic cuz we work on credit scores um (laughs) work and my own credit score has dropped in the course of this this experience um I'm working to get that back up but but I think you know when I look back I I I don't it was absolutely worth it you know and it was a little bit of temporary pain so that we could continue to do the work that can serve so many more people outside of ourselves yeah of course it's worth it and so Uh, we've come close, but we made it through. And, and, and like you said, this, this past round is evidence that persistence (laughs) sometimes does pay off. Mm.
2: What's been the single hardest moment?
1: Um, I would say that COVID has obviously rocked everyone's world. And and it's been a roller coaster, as we call our industry, the solar coaster. And what felt worst about COVID was that in April, our we saw kind of our revenues go off a cliff in in March because so much of what we do is about community organizing and and trying to work with local communities to to get access to clean energy and build their wealth. Um, but a lot of that work happens in person, and so when we were no longer able to do that, we we saw our revenues go off a cliff and initially, I was just worried that my team was going to get sick. And we wanted to prevent everyone from getting sick. And then I realized that in order to ensure the that solstice would be around after COVID, I would have to cut our burn rate more than I felt comfortable cutting our burn rate. And so in on April of this year, we, we laid off 10 folks, and it was a really hard day. Um, I don't judge anyone for crying but I'm not my crier myself but we when we after that day where we told everyone that we were so sorry that we weren't able to keep their positions I I found myself sobbing to my family and my partner because I felt terrible about having to do that to people you know you work so hard to build an inclusive um, work environment where people can thrive and where they can be their best self and the moment they need you the most you have to let them down and that killed me and ultimately you know it was it w- we had to do it we, and we we, f- we pivoted we f- we restructured the company we changed all of our strategies and I'm really happy to say that the this quarter with uh, the quarter's not over yet but this quarter is our biggest, Revenue quarter in the history of Solstice. And it's, you know, 4X what our best quarter previously was. And that's all due to the team. The team really came together and said, okay, we got to come up with creative solutions to this problem. And we have to figure out a way to keep doing the work because the work's too important. And they did. And so to have gone through that really and feel like I failed my team and to have the team come through with creative solutions to COVID has been incredible to, to see and to work alongside.
2: As a woman of color who, as you talked about earlier, was raised by a single immigrant mother uh, on a working class salary, what advice would you give to founders who do not see themselves represented in our industry? It's a real problem. I mean, it's it's not just,
1: I don't know if people know this, but. 22% of the energy industry is, are women and renewable energy is, you think would be much better because, um, but it's not, it's about 25% of the energy I mean the re- clean energy industry is women and then numbers for BIPOC, black, indigenous, people of color aren't even tracked because I'm pretty sure it's very low and um, it used to be that when we went to an energy conference, they may have had a panel on social equity and it would be in a really small room to the side of the conference, never the main stage. And I have been incredibly blown away by the past few months in which I have never heard more people talk about social equity and racial justice in energy and in climate than in the past few months, and this reckoning has been really hard for people in the past few months. Um, it's been really raw for people, but it's been it's given me a lot of hope that change can come quicker than we think. And so, if you don't see someone who looks like you in the industry you want to work in, take it from a you know a, a tiny Asian woman who worked in national security at the White House and and now in energy that. You just have to just believe that that future can come more quickly than
2: you think and work towards the future. Have faith uh, that it will come. We're going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, one or two word answers, starting with if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I love pollinators because they bring, you know, pollen to different kinds of
1: plants and animals. So and I would go with hummingbird because they eat twice their weight in food amazing if you had to start a new career tomorrow what would it be i'd love to be a photographer it's my Mm. one of my passions in life Mm. when have you failed i think if you don't fail in this job you're probably not ambitious enough and so i do truly fail uh, every day and, and i don't feel good about it because i feel like every day i let someone down um and particularly when I have failed, is we live at the nexus of two worlds. One is the market-driven world of solar developers and financiers who are building new projects, and ultimately they have a responsibility to make their projects pencil out for their capital providers. And on the other hand, we work for the activist world, the environmental justice and climate justice world, who is right when they say that the energy industry as it is does not uh, support our, our shared values of justice and equity. And so if you're working with both worlds and you're in the middle of them, you're generally gonna be unsatisfactory to either one or both at any given moment. You know, we <laughs> we can always do better on equity and we should hold ourselves to that standard and always keep pushing the bar on that. And we should also figure out a way to make, to make the market include more low income and and Black and Indigenous and Latinx folks uh, that have been locked out of the market. But but doing those two things at the same time, climate change mitigation and racial justice or, or or poverty alleviation, generally means that we're failing someone at any
2: given moment. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I used to think that inequities existed
1: because of a lack of political will. I thought it was that simple. And then I worked in India and I worked in areas of the country that I think ordinary Indians don't even go to. They're so rural and out of the way. So I would take a plane, then get on a train overnight, and then I get in a car for five hours to visit a village that didn't have access to electricity. And I realized that it's not just political will, that you have to invent new systems to get people more access so you have to give them you have to figure out how to get distribution right to deliver to the last mile you have to figure out how to allow people to finance their purchases you can't just invent the the solar lantern you have to invent the ecosystem that changes systems that give people access to this stuff
2: what is your worst trait
1: i am well i'm gonna give you two (laughs) Uh, i'm i'm impatient Um, I'm also I have a tendency towards all or nothing Mm. uh, (laughs) behaviors. And so the all side of things can be very intense Mm. for people. And it's it's more conducive to an environment like like the White House or like a political campaign rather than a startup that allows everyone work life balance. That's something we do pry, pride ourselves on and giving a lot of people flexibility at Solstice, but it was a journey for me to get to a more
2: relaxed state about work. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy about that for you. I'm most proud of.
1: My brother, I haven't gotten to really talk about him. He, he deals with a debilitating, really painful medical illness. And he every day lives with pain and he's still the most generous human that I've ever met in my entire life. He's so thoughtful. He always puts other people in front of him. And I once had a bad toothache that and it put me in a terrible mood for for a whole week. And I realized that, you know, he, he lives with so much pain. And to be able to be that generous is 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 a mark of strength. And he's the strongest
2: person I know. So definitely my brother. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they don't
1: empower the right leaders. Uh, At the right time.
2: If you really knew me, you would know.
1: I used to DJ on uh, '90s hip hop and stuff you've been
2: (laughs) holding out on me under the name DJ
1: Big Spoon in homage (laughs) to Notorious Big, and I really wish I could DJ again
2: that's amazing if i google this will i find any videos or sound no no just like the people in my grad school will know that (laughs) okay i love it dj big spoon coming to you live uh success is
1: success is creating a world where everyone can get solar power and clean energy regardless of their income regardless of the type of roof
2: they have or any other marker of privilege if there was just one or two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want them to be?
1: <laughs> I, I, I mean, my joke answer is Mark Ruffalo, because I really want to meet him, because I think we would share values. You definitely and- <laughs> share
2: values. We can help. <laughs>
1: but my real answer is my my grandma. So my grandma was a entrepreneur in you know mid 20th century South Korea and she had to do it out of necessity because my grandfather didn't earn any enough money to support their whole family and she had five children and also ran a business and she was mocked mercilessly for running a business as a woman in post Korean war Korea because it meant that she was failing as a mother she was you know she was just supposed to mother and she was a social failure for starting a business and so I'd love to for her to see you uh, do what you do on, at Powerhouse. And I'd love to, for her to see what we do at Solstice and, and realize that the, the future she always dreamed about is, is coming. It's not quite here, but it's coming.
2: Steph, this has been so amazing. I thank you for sharing your journey and uh, just very grateful for, for you and what you're bringing to the world. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And that's a wrap
0: on another edition of What It Takes. Thanks to Steph Spears for joining us. We had a very long mic check to get her microphone just right. So thanks for bearing with us, Steph. A good conversation. Thanks to Emily Kirsch as well. If you want to learn more about the entrepreneurs in this space who are making real change in clean tech and the environment, go to powerhouse.fun to learn about future interviews and future events. Uh, remote, of course. Uh, and you can also go to Green Tech Media and subscribe to our newsletter. You'll search for what it takes on the website or just Google it and you're going to see all our episodes logged there. We have dozens and dozens of really high profile people who have gone through so much and you can learn from their experiences as maybe you build your own company. Finally, a friend or give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hugely helpful for us. And feel free to suggest topics to us uh, on Twitter at the Energy Gang feed or any of our co-hosts. The Gang will be back next week. We're gearing up here for the election. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Stephen Lacey.